Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. In Washington these days, there is a new bipartisan consensus around being tough on China. If China threatens our sovereignty, we will act to protect our country and we... Danger posed by our dependence on China's dire. This was happening even before the Chinese sent a spy balloon drifting across the United States. We know that Beijing continues to coerce, to intimidate. The House recently voted to create a new select committee on China by a vote of 365 to 65. You don't see too many lopsided votes like that these days. And the approach to China that this new committee will take is underscored by its official title the House Select Committee on Strategic Competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party. But the balloon incident has really brought Democrats and Republicans together in outrage about China. On Thursday, the House voted 419 to nothing for a resolution condemning China for its, quote, brazen violation of United States sovereignty, end quote. The resolution is agreed to. Over in the Senate, Democrats and Republicans took turns scolding Biden officials who came to Capitol Hill for a hearing on what the administration knew about the balloon and when they knew it. Last year, then-Speaker Nancy Pelosi, in one of her final foreign trips, visited Taiwan against the wishes of both Xi Jinping and Joe Biden. Not to be outdone, later this year, the new speaker, Kevin McCarthy, is planning his own trip to Taiwan and the Chinese have already publicly warned him not to go. I, I don't think China can tell me where I can go at any time at any place. The China hawks now dominate the thinking of both parties when it comes to Sino-U.S. relations. Max Baucus thinks they are wrong. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. Baucus watched the balloon incident unfold from a unique perspective. He's a former senator from Montana, and he was in the state as the balloon drifted overhead and ranchers traded notes about what kinds of guns might be able to take it out. But more importantly, Baucus was the U.S. ambassador to China from 2014 to 2017. Before that, he was, depending on the year, the chairman or ranking member of the very powerful Senate Finance Committee. I've been so lucky in life. I've had two of the greatest jobs in the world. He now runs a public policy institute in his home state, and I should point out, has been a paid advisor to both American and Chinese corporations since leaving office. He is not on board with the new consensus around China policy. And as you'll hear in this fascinating conversation, he has plenty of criticism for his former colleagues in the Senate, the Uber hawks in the House, and the Biden administration as well. Neither country's going away. We have to deal with each other. And he'll explain why he wishes he could rent a 747 and fly every member of Congress to Beijing and feed them stinky tofu. 
So you are in the unique position of both having been ambassador to China and being in Montana while the balloon flew over your state. Now, your colleagues in Congress are pretty worked up about this. I wonder if you can just start by telling us a little bit about how this looked from the ground in Montana when this was happening last week, and what were the conversations that, uh, that you were having? Well, it was mixed. There are a lot of jokes. <laughs> I didn't see you tweet any picture with, you know, with your AR-15 on your front porch like some others were doing. Yeah, there are a lot of jokes about <laughs> who had the best rifle shoots the farthest <laughs> and hit that balloon. <laughs> so there's a lot of that, a lot of jokes along the, those lines. I yeah, saw yeah. John Tester last, our Senator John Tester, Friday. <laughs> I said, John, you know what's happening? They're, that balloon's over there flying over your farm out there because they're trying to figure out whether they could run for re-election. And uh, he laughed. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a lot of concern about it. What is that balloon up there? Hey, that's a Chinese balloon. It's flying over us. That doesn't sound very good. That's not right. Yeah, there's something about the whole thing where it's hard to take seriously when it's a balloon. A balloon just makes everything seem funny. <laughs> yeah. All right. So imagine you are ambassador. You're back in your, your role as ambassador to China. Just take us through what that would be like when something like this happens. What is Ambassador Burns dealing with? What was he dealing with uh, last week? You know, when China and the U.S. have one of these issues and they crop up from time to time, what would you have been recommending to the Biden administration in, in terms of how they handle this? I've been thinking, gosh, if I were still in the Senate and still chairing the Senate Finance Committee, I'd be holding exhaustive hearings on China and all the different ramifications, national security, trade, Tax, human rights, just and and do it objectively. We just to, not, I don't mean to interrupt, but we don't think of that kind of hearing when we think of the finance committee. But would would it be unusual for the finance committee to do something like that, or it's in its wheelhouse? <laughs> Anything is in the wheelhouse of the finance committee. It has jurisdiction. <laughs> over, it has jurisdiction over everything. In fact, I've like, heard it's a very coveted committee to chair. <laughs> oh, I, I think it's the most important committee in the Congress. And if anybody's honest, they'll, they'll admit that. Anyway. I'm a little concerned now about Mike Gallagher's select committee in the House. I'm concerned that's going to be... Um... That was my next question. So tell us a little bit about your reaction to how the, the, you know, the vote setting up that committee and the rhetoric surrounding that committee, because it doesn't sound like it's off to the kind of start that you're recommending if you were chairman of the Senate Finance Committee and doing this. Well, that's correct. Um, first, it has no legislative jurisdiction, the select committee. The finance committee did. When you have a legislative jurisdiction, it kind of helps you be responsible because you've got to work on passing legislation. And to pass bills, you've got to have votes and majority, that kind of thing. Oh, so it sort of hems things in a little bit. We're working towards a goal of actually writing law. Correct. But, but it's a select committee, no legislative jurisdiction. It does have subpoena power. Now, that could get dicey. Because if it starts to subpoena people that cause a lot of attention, national attention, it could be negative, it could be positive, but it just depends on how Chairman Gallagher handles that ability to have subpoena power. But it's, I'm a little concerned. It's not off to a good start. McCarthy set it up, and House Republicans tend to be more anti-China even than the House Democrats. They're both anti-China. And I think if Joe Biden runs again, the House Republicans and that committee are going to look for ways to try to embarrass Joe Biden on China. And they'll do the same with Democrats generally. I hate to say it, but that's my judgment is what's going to happen. Ambassador Burns will see the probably the foreign minister, the current foreign minister is a guy named Wang Yi. It's a formal protest. The balloon's flying over the United States. It's violating our sovereignty. And they'll talk back and forth. And 
The main point is he will make his point strongly. The Chinese will, they may say, well, it's a weather balloon, but after a while they can't say that anymore. They'll say, well, you do this. We both surveil each other. But the main point is the protest will be made, and that's good. Do you think that uh, Secretary Blinken was correct in calling off the trip because of this incident? That's a very good question. It's very unfortunate he did. He probably had to, given domestic politics. Because had he gone over, I can just see so many members of Congress, House Republicans and Democrats, just giving him the dickens because he's going over there at the time when China's flying over our sovereignty. How could you do that, Secretary Blinken? So, and I think he had no choice. And it's very unfortunate. Some suggest that the PLA just thought of this idea. PLA is pretty independent of other ministries in China. One theory is they thought of this idea, send the balloon over, and did not inform the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or did not inform other members of the Chinese government. So it could be a kerfuffle. It could be just a big screw-up, part of the expression, in China. That's possible. I think it's, it's also probable. And they wouldn't want to do it specifically at this moment when Blinken is coming over there, is what, is what you mean? Absolutely. Right. Exactly. You did not think it was a great idea for then-Speaker Pelosi to visit Taiwan and I'd like you to talk about why that was. The new speaker, Kevin McCarthy, seems set on also visiting Taiwan. Certainly tensions haven't relaxed since the Pelosi visit. If anything, things are more tense. Tell us a little bit about why you thought Pelosi, that trip was a mistake, and what you think the fallout from it was, and what would you advise Speaker McCarthy to do here? When I was over there serving, first of all, I loved the job. I've been so lucky in life. I've had two of the greatest jobs in the world. One is representing Montana in the U.S. Senate and chairing the Senate Finance Committee. That's the world's best job in Congress, I think. The second, <laughs> second world's best job is representing the United States in, in China. And I love that job. Why? Two reasons. One is I just have deep respect for the Chinese people. They're straightforward. They're honest, for the most part, direct. They like doing stuff, doing deals and getting stuff done, and I think they're more upbeat about their future than Americans are, uh, we Americans are about ours, frankly. And second, I love the job because of the reward of working on the relationship, U.S.-China. It's so important, it's, and it's so rewarding to do whatever I could to help each country understand each other a little bit better, because it's, it's who I am, it's my DNA, which I very much like doing. Tell us a little bit more about what it was like when you were there, what were the big crises on your watch, and also, what prepared you for that assignment? Well, I've always had an interest in China for many, many years. When I was in the U.S. Senate, representing Montana, whenever there's a new Chinese ambassador to Washington, D.C., I'd take that person, that ambassador, to Montana for several days, and including um, the current top guy who's going to be, he's going to leave soon, Wang Jiechi. Um, there are a lot of, I mean, it's, it's, it helped Montanans earn a little bit about China, helped Chinese learn a little bit Montana. I've done this for years, and I take Montana delegations to China many times. So in China, it's kind of corny, but I learned what I call my three Ps. That is, with the Chinese, you got to be patient, you got to be positive, and you got to be persistent. Stick with it. Stick with the issue in a positive way. Don't be negative. Don't be personal. Be patient. Just stick with it. And more often than not, you make headway. You make progress in, in whatever issue it might be. And there are tons of issues. Um, they really don't make a lot of newspapers. But don't forget... We're a big country. Our U.S. mission in China has about 2,300 people. And the embassy itself serves not only the State Department, but also virtually every other U.S. government agency, Department of Agriculture, Department of Education, 
CDC, Interior, you name it. And so each of those departments have their issues that they're working on. So what prepared me? I spent a lot of time working on China in the first place. Over the years, I've been thinking a lot about China because my judgment is pretty clear it's the most important bilateral relationship in the world. We've got to manage this right for the sake of our kids and our grandkids. And so I, I just, it's been very, very much on top of my mind for, for many, many years. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. What was the biggest flashpoint during uh, your ambassadorship? What was the most sensitive or biggest crisis that popped up while you were there? One was a Chinese island building in the, in the South China Sea. The Chinese is big, huge ships, and they dump sand, and they just keep dumping sand, building up these islands. And they said at first, no, they're just for civilian purposes, but clearly for military purposes as well. I think primarily they were built to protect uh, shipping lanes because so much shipping traffic comes through the Malacca Straits and up to the South China Sea. You know. We Americans are blessed with an abundant energy resources, coal, oil, and gas. China isn't. China has, has to import. They import more oil than any other country. And iron ore and things like that they import so much. They're not blessed like, like we are. So they want to protect them in the South China Sea. That's, that's the main reason I think they build those islands up. But we would protest over and over again. That's violated the international law. I'd speak to them until I was blue in the face about all that. And they wouldn't even want to discuss it. I'd point out, hey, other countries have claims. Philippines, Bahrain, North, uh, Vietnam have claims. Uh, uh, South China Sea. Um, they wouldn't talk about it. It's might makes right. They had the power. They did it. They did it. We just could not do a thing. But it kind of reminds me of something else. It really gets to the... A, I think a main issue, how to deal with China. We had summits. <clears throat> President Obama would meet with President Xi in the U.S., also in, in, in China, for example. Each year there'd be one. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> it's kind of interesting. A couple insights. In the first summit, this would be 2014, I think, President Xi was really upset with what he regarded as Americans fomenting unrest in Hong Kong. This is during the Umbrella Movement. And you could tell that was under his skin. And President Obama said, oh, no, 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 don't. you got to remember that human rights is part of American DNA. It's in our Constitution, Declaration of Independence, et cetera. Um, and even I, President Obama, you know, it's in my DNA, too. You gotta, we're not fomenting unrest, but you got to understand why a member of the U.S. Senate might stand up and say something about it. Then President um, Xi went on and on by talking about the role of emperors and how the role of emperors is to protect the people. If the people are doing well, the emperor stays, he keeps his job. If the people don't do well over thousands of years, then the emperor doesn't do too well. He loses his job. And you could tell that he was kind of, he didn't say he's an emperor, but you could feel that as, as the president, he was pretty much playing the role. And that is part of the Faustian bargain between the Chinese leadership and the people. That is, if the Communist Party can keep the people happy, as incomes up and so forth, then they're not going to question the government. That's that's the bargain that they're they're trying to maintain over there. But it was this it's really interesting his role is 
is concerned about Hong Kong. That was really interesting. Once I was talking to President Xi, man, he has no love for Kim Jong-un in North Korea. Really? And we see him as the, the great protector of North Korea, but he thinks of him as what, a, a stepchild that's uh, always messing up? <laughs> I've forgotten the words he used, but he'd tell us, I'm that young man over there. I mean, it just, it just bothered him. No, but China doesn't want the peninsula to change. China does not want to see the Korean peninsula to be all under U.S. control with South Korea. It doesn't want to see it be all under North Korean control under Kim. It wants the status quo. So it's, it's going to keep that as much as it possibly can. But at one other summit, now this gets to the point where I think this is how we deal with China. Um, the second summit that I attended is in D.C., and it was kind of during the South China Sea Islands era. I was having lunch just with uh, Defense Secretary Ash Carter, and there were others there, too, around the table bunch. We were talking about China. At the end of the lunch, I walked up to Secretary Carter. I said, Ash, you know, don't take this the wrong way. Don't take this the wrong way. But this is virtual war with China. All the islands are building up over there. And one that we really were concerned about is the Scarborough Shoal, which is just off of Philippines. And we're worried that China might militarize the Scarborough Shoal. It's a real problem. So I said to Ash, here's what we should do. President Obama should, in as small a room as possible, as few people in the room as possible, um, look at President Xi straight in the eye and say, uh-uh. You don't go there. Don't go to Scarborough. If you do, there'll be immense repercussions. You're going to rue the day you did that. And Obama should say that directly in a way that she knows we mean it, we back it up, and um, privately. You don't let them lose face. Actually, oh, that's a great idea. Let's go do that. Now, that's what we did. Now, maybe they weren't going to go to Scarborough anyway. I don't know. But they didn't. They didn't go to Scarborough. And Obama did directly tell she this? Absolutely. That was exactly what it was. In the room was himself, Susan Rice, our interpreter, Jim Brown, wonderful guy, by the way, uh, President Xi, Yang Dechir, and his interpreter. Six people in the room. And that's exactly what he did. Straight, and it worked. My point is that we Americans have to develop a longer-term strategic policy with respect to China. We don't have one now. It's pretty much still ad hoc. We react too much. We've got to figure out where our red lines are, what we can agree with, what we cannot agree with, and communicate that very solidly, privately at first, privately, to the Chinese leadership in a way they know we mean it. But after we develop our strategy so we know where the red lines are. What do you make so far of the Biden administration's approach uh, to China? And is that truly the case? Do Biden and she have something uh, unique or is that a little bit exaggerated on the president's behalf? <laughs> President Xi, first, second, third, and fourth, is representing the Chinese people and Chinese interests, irrespective of any relationship he may have with somebody else. Same thing with Joe Biden. He represents the United States of America, first, second, third, and fourth. Now, if he's able to call somebody up and talk to somebody, that's great. But unfortunately, the, the divide is so deep between the two countries now but it's all formal. It's just formal. They just, talk, they just do their talking points, and it just, it's not really advancing the ball. Things went downhill um, significantly in Anchorage when uh, Secretary Blinken and uh, Yang Jiechir were critical of each other a couple of years ago. And um, subsequent summits in Bali was an effort. Bali was an effort to try to put a floor on that so our country would be working better together. But basically, once President Biden and President Xi 
talk nice to each other in Bali, when they go back home, things don't change very much. It's just it's, it's the nature of the yeah. business. So it's also unfortunate, in my view, I had some very good Chinese friends uh, high up in the government, and I talked to them before the election. They said they hoped Biden would win, huh? and not Trump. Why? <clears throat> they said, we can deal with Biden, they thought, because he's steeped in foreign policy and he's in chairman of that foreign relations committee. He's, he's reasonable, whereas Trump just yeah. flies all over the lot. You never know where Trump's going to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. But they changed their mind afterwards because Biden's his rhetoric isn't as anti-China as Trump's, but his policies are more anti-China than Trump's. Interesting. Let's talk about the balloon and the fallout for a second. You know, the Chinese seem very outraged about this. I guess I was a little surprised that they were so outraged. Uh, what did they expect? But just to sort of play devil's advocate, did they have a point there? Did we make a mistake in, in shooting it down, or was that the right thing to do? I think it's the right thing to do. I mean, it's a foreign country, violate our sovereignty. I thought it was the right thing to do on a policy ground. I think it's also the right thing to do on a political ground. All right, let's go back to Taiwan and um, your criticism of Pelosi. What, what did you think the fallout from that trip was? Was it as, as bad as you thought it was going to be when you were saying she shouldn't go? And do you think Speaker McCarthy should go ahead with his planned trip to Taiwan? Well, um, you know, Taiwan is existential to China. Chinese lived there. Taiwan was part of China. And the Japanese came in, took it over. That Japanese are expelled. Mainland China believes that Taiwan's part of China. And uh, when Secretary Kissinger and Nixon talked to Mao and, and um, Zhou Enlai and Deng Xiaoping, uh, the agreement was, well, let's put Taiwan on the shelf. I'm not going to figure out what the solution should be for Taiwan. They also agreed on what's called a one-China policy. And under the one-China policy, both the United States and China recognize that China and Taiwan is one China. And so long as there's a peaceful resolution, mainland China annexing or including Taiwan. Also an agreement that the United States and China, no country recognizes Taiwan as being independent. Now, it's, it's, it's developed into a democracy. That's good. But um, as soon as the United States says it's independent, my Katie bar the door. Who knows what China's going to do then? Because it's very, very, as I said, existential uh, to the Chinese. That was drilled into me when I was over there. Uh, I'm sure it's drilled into Ambassador Nick Burns currently. Now, we run the risk, both countries do, including the United States, um, with excessive rhetoric over Taiwan getting close to a tripwire where, where something untoward happens. We adhere to a one-China policy, but we're not following it. We, that's the rhetoric, but that's not what we do. We send a lot more arms over under the Taiwan Relations Act um, more than we really should. Um, and um, so when I heard that Speaker Pelosi was thinking about going over, the, uh, uh, this is not a good idea. This is, is going to stir things up unnecessarily. So what, what's the reason for Speaker Pelosi to go to Taiwan? There's only one reason, and that's to show the American flag um, in, in Taiwan. Taiwanese know we're, <laughs> we're supporting them. You know, like, good Lord, all the arms that we're sending to, the, to Taiwan. So I, there are other reasons why she went. It couldn't have been to, to show America's support for Taiwan. I think she went basically for herself, that she just, she just wanted to go. And the fallout is what we, I expected. One is um, <clears throat> the U.S. of uh, China stopped talking to John Kerry about climate change. 
Um, in addition to that, the hotline between China and the U.S. military was cut off, basically. They pulled in their horns. They, they wanted to show that they don't like it. Now, Speaker McCarthy is in a box. He has to go um, because Speaker Pelosi went and because Republicans in the House will be outraged if he doesn't go. I think it's bad, but it's got to be managed. So if he goes, um, I, I hope that President Biden figures out a way to kind of manage all this in a way so that McCarthy's visit doesn't just cause even more problems than, than we already face. President Biden, when he's asked about whether the United States will defend Taiwan if the Chinese uh, invade, has said, at least on four occasions, uh, yes, <laughs> we will. As you were pointing out, explaining the one China policy, the formal position of the United States is strategic ambiguity. Biden has repeatedly taken uh, the ambiguity <laughs> out, out of that equation. And each time it happens, staff sort of tell the press, oh, oh you know, he didn't really mean that. <laughs> strategic ambiguity is still the policy. What do you make of the fact that he has been so clear about uh, the fact that we'll come to Taiwan's uh, defense? Or does it not really matter anymore because everyone knows that anyway? Well, I was a bit surprised at President Biden's statements. <clears throat> he did overstate it. There's no question. And his staff had to walk it back two or three times. Um, I think the wiser approach for him to not have made those statements and maintain a strategic ambiguity because that has served us pretty well. Um, and um, there are some who think we should scrap that. We should define red lines with Taiwan. I think that causes more problems than it solves. We should maintain strategic ambiguity, and frankly, in my judgment, this not, may not be popular with some people, let Taiwan be Taiwan. Taiwan's doing well. It's a democracy. The people there are doing pretty well. Um, and uh, just don't crank things up U.S. side, because then the Chinese won't get all too cranked up either. They'll want to play the long game, not the short game. The long game is just over time, maybe, maybe, maybe do a deal with, with Taiwan, I mean, 20 years from now, with some agreement between mainland China and Taiwan, and they can work something out. The short term for them is military, and that they don't want that. China does not want war. But the more we provoke them, the more we poke the eye of the bear, the more we're getting closer to something like that. A lot of uh, observers have have said that China is watching very closely what we're doing with respect to Ukraine and, and Russia. What lessons do you think they're taking away from that war when it comes to uh, intentions uh, in Taiwan? Well, I think a couple of lessons. <clears throat> One, boy, President Putin sure botched it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think they. <clears throat> Uh, China thought, I'm sure, as did the U.S., certainly the U.S. intelligence community, all thought that, that when Putin started to invade Ukraine, they'd have the end of it. It'd be over in a short period. Our, our U.S. intelligence community said that. They were wrong, yeah. dead wrong. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm sure that China had some of the same views, that, uh, but I found out that, hey, well, that's not true. So they're finding that Putin, one lesson they've learned is Putin is a little more of a paper tiger than before. Second, they've learned, hey, we better make sure our military is working well because the Russians found out their military wasn't working too well. <clears throat> and um, they're going to go back and, 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 and revamp their military and make sure it's, it's very efficient. Another lesson they've learned clearly is <clears throat> that countries came to the defense of Ukraine, um, including the United States. 
and um, that's not lost upon the upon the Chinese. Um, um, China, I mean, Taiwan's an issue, but I think we overstate it. We spend too much time worrying about it. Our actions should be a little less belligerent with respect to China on, on Taiwan, and that'll help ease our, our relationship with um, with China. You know, there's kind of a bifurcation going on here. You know, at one level, you know, Congress and the administration and the media all talk about China and how bad the balloon is, for example. But here's the bifurcation. American companies and American consumers are wedded to China. Last year, the trade, our merchandise trade with China was about almost $700 billion, a new record. American companies are very bullish on China because it's such a huge market, and we buy so many products, Chinese products. Um, and it's, 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 it's so when, at one level in the media, you know, terrible, terrible China, but another level, you know, companies and consumers, frankly, are um, uh, pretty tied to China, and I think we should remember that and try to get the two closer together. Do you think that the United States and China are inevitably headed towards military confrontation, or uh, um, are there ways to that two powers the size and strength of of the United States and China um, can avoid that? There's a there's a lot of conventional wisdom that when you have a rising power like China, and at some point. Uh, uh, perhaps a declining power like the United States, or even if the United States, you wouldn't describe it as a declining power. At some point, um, if you look at world history, those two entities are going to come uh, to, uh, are going to go to war with one another. Uh, What's your view of that? I I think it's highly unlikely there'll be military confrontation with China. Highly unlikely. And I, I, I cringe a little bit, and I see a lot of American generals say, "Oh, war is inevitable," and just, it just that just makes things worse. Because in my judgment, um, it's not inevitable. But the more generals talk about war, the more it's going to maybe become more likely. No, we don't want war. Neither country wants war. It's just it's just not in their in their DNA to, to go to war. It's not in ours to go to war. Although we have in other countries, frankly, um, it's um. So no, I think it's highly unlikely there'll be a military confrontation with China. Highly, because the consequences are just too dire. They're just too consequential. They're too. It just almost. It's it, and that's, that's going to cause people to sober up a little bit and try to find ways to avoid war. The so I guess my final question here um, is. What's your advice for the Biden administration going forward in the wake of this balloon incident, in the wake of escalating rhetoric over Taiwan and some sort of tit for tat um, uh, responses, as you were describing, in terms of, you know, John Kerry no longer getting any cooperation on uh, on climate talks? Um, and I don't we, we haven't seen any response from the Chinese about blowing this thing out of the sky, but um, we we might get some uh, we, we might uh, get some response what's what's your advice for the Biden administration going forward to um, de-escalate things and get back on track and then get and even when they were on track as you were describing they were just at the most superficial level 
um, the talks between Biden and, and Xi, the way that, that, that uh, according to your account, how do you get back to even that baseline and uh, and then beyond? Well, first, I um, I hope that now that China's <clears throat> repealed zero COVID, that there'd be a lot more travel communications between the United States and China. Um, the more more Americans visit China and spend time over there, and the more and more Chinese visit the United States and spend time in our country, the better off we're going to be. Because ignorance breeds fear. And so few Americans have been to China, know anything about China. And so they're likely to be fearful because they're ignorant. And it works both ways. Um, and, and to be honest, many in the, in, the, in the current administration who are calling the shots, and many members of Congress, haven't been to China. They think they're experts, and it's easy to be experts. It's easy to criticize, um, but um, they, they've not been to China. One a key person in the prior administration called me up prior to going to China. Said, Max, what do I do? I've never been there before. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, well, you can't just go there for a weekend. I mean, it's a big place. I, that's, that's exactly right. <laughs> that's number one. I'd work as hard as I could <clears throat> if I were President Biden uh, to figure out ways to get more travel, communication, different levels you know, uh, to China, not just government, but, you know, opera, you know, music, um, and just all kinds of ways to, to spend time in China and vice versa. Because you'll learn a lot. You'll learn a lot. Yeah. And, you know, and what, what do you learn? You learn that Chinese people are just like American people. That is, they have the same hopes and desires and fears. They want to put food on the table. They want to have a decent income. They want to take care of their kids, decent education for their kids, you know, air and water pollution addressed. Um, dealt with and uh, be left alone a little bit, decent health care. I mean, it's, we're the same. We're the same. And it's kind of nutty that we're getting all wrapped up around the axle, frankly, um, both governments um, at a different level. Um, I'd also um, encourage him, and I think they're doing this, don't be critical. Whenever you criticize somebody, it causes more problems than it solves because <laughs> they don't like it. They dig down deeper or they fire back insults themselves. It just doesn't work. Don't be critical. Be honest, be direct, be realistic, and, and confront things that need to be confronted directly, but don't make it personal. I, I think your, your point about members traveling there and actually understanding the country at a more than superficial level is, is, a, is a really good one. I, I remember I spent two weeks in, in, in China, and uh, the what I, my big takeaway was how little I knew about the place and how much more complicated and vast it was. Um, I remember going to a city called Wuhan back in 2013. And at the time, nobody knew what Wuhan was. In fact, I remember visiting it there. It's a city of over 10 million people right. and thinking, I can't believe I didn't know that this city exist, existed. It is a massive city of more than 10 million people. And you looked at the skyline and it looked like it was going to be 20 million. They were, they were getting ready to, to, to double the size of the, the, the place. And I, the, the feeling I had in visiting that was just, wow, um, it's kind of embarrassing that uh, I couldn't even have told you the name of this city or that it existed, uh, you know, b b before I went there. I mean, we, we know most international cities of over 10 million people, right? Um, and, you know, of course, Wuhan's a lot more famous uh, uh, t today since, since, since COVID. But I, I think that's, uh, that, that's great, 
great advice. Um, you know, when I was over there, um, his master, <clears throat> following that same line of thinking, I thought to myself, kind of, I didn't pursue it. I wish I could fill up a, a expanded 747 and filled up with members of Congress um, and and fly them all over to China and stay in China two three weeks, travel all around China, not just government, but go and talk to people, eat, eat stinky tofu and, um, and all the noodles and rice and just restaurant and all that. It would be it would help so much, but of course that's kind of fanciful. Never, Never did happen. Yeah, we're in a very different place with the rhetoric. Well, I appreciate you giving us a different perspective about China and the U.S. relationship because what um, Washington, the rhetoric right now is very, very hawkish and, and, and confrontational. So um, I appreciate it, Mr. Ambassador. Um, is there anything we didn't talk about that you think would be important to get to? When I arrived, you know, you, you present your credentials to the president. So when I presented my credentials to President Xi, I told him, I'm going to visit every single province in China. That's one of my goals. And he looked at me and he kind of smiled. And he liked that. He said, looked at me, he said, your predecessor missed five. <laughs> he knew that. Who was that? That was Gary Locke. That was Gary Locke. Yeah. <laughs> anyway... I did go to every province, but every time I'd see him, he'd, he'd ask me. He's keeping book on me. Um, how many have I visited? I went to all the provinces. It's it's so interesting. They're all so different. Reminded me a lot of America. You know, way up the north, Heilongjiang is it's very cold. It's like Maine and Vermont in the winter, and, and you go down south, Yunnan. It's you know, it's like Florida and the, the Keys in the summer, and you go way <clears throat> um, west and. Xinjiang is like desert, like, like Nevada desert, for example. And um, it's just it's a fascinating country geographically. But also politically, culturally, there's so many different ethnic groups in, in different parts of China, in addition to, to the Han Chinese, the, the main main um, race in China. But it was just it's fascinating. And anyway, I love the job. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Afra Abdullah. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Brooke Hayes is the senior editor of audio at Politico. Jenny Amont is Politico's executive producer of audio. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Please subscribe to Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.